0: Thank you for joining us today for our River of Life podcast with Derek Gray. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrofferville.com. That's rolcrofferville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crofferville. Now, let's join Derek as he teaches from the Word of God. I People and places and names and things like that. Now, most of us, our reaction to that, and if you're honest, when you get to those sections, this is your reaction. You're like, well, you know, I don't see how that's got any spiritual significance at all. So most of us do one of two things. We either just completely skip it, or, or you may be one of those people, where you're going to finish it no matter what, right? You just you just power through <laughs> And you're going to finish that book, and so you go through it. But let's be honest, you don't pay much attention. You don't put much, uh, you don't meditate on it. You don't think about it. You just consider it trivial information at at the end of the book. Now, let me tell you, that is a mistake. I used to make that mistake, and I don't make that mistake anymore. Because I realized one day what I was missing. Because in this information, these are real people. These are real places in a real time. And and one of the things that it shows us, if we'll really look into some of these, is the character of the person. You know, one thing about Paul, if you look at some of these things like we will tonight, you'll find out Paul didn't just preach the gospel, Paul lived the gospel. It wasn't just something that came out of his mouth. It it was something that he believed and lived uh, and walked in every fiber of his uh, being. Now I also think these uh, these sections are important, and the reason I think that is because the Bible tells me, 2 Timothy three sixteen, Paul says this: All Scripture is God breathed. All Scripture is God breathed. If it's written down, then there's a reason for it. <clears throat> I, I don't consider anything to be trivial or anything like that. So. When I get to these sections, I kind of get excited because I'm thinking, "Okay, what are we gonna what are we gonna learn uh, from from this?" And and in fact, what we'll find is we'll just invest a little bit of time, a little bit of study, in some cases, a little bit of research. We'll be surprised by what we can learn. Now, of course, the reason I bring that up is our verses tonight, chapter 15, verses 22 or 33, are going to be filled with a lot of kind of personal information. And if you just read it, you think, well, you know, it's not a whole lot there. I'm just going to move on. But what we're going to find tonight is we're going to find four lessons from the life of Paul. Four lessons from the life of Paul. The first one I've entitled, the first lesson from his life I've entitled, A Holy Ambition. A Holy Ambition. We find this in verses 20 to 24. Let's start with verses 20 to 22. Paul says, and thus I make it, and there's the two words, my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Now remember, he's writing to the church at Rome. Now... If you just go to the dictionary and you look up the word ambition, it'll say something like this a strong desire to do something or achieve something that usually involves determination, sacrifice, and hard work. Now, we all know what ambition is. And the fact is, but most of the time when we use the word, we use it in a secular sense, right? We think of it in somebody's career. They're they're trying to attain to a certain rank or they're trying to attain to a certain title or a certain amount of money or whatever the case may be. So we think of ambition in a very uh, secular sense. But here, the word is used in regard to Paul in his life. And what it does is it tells us something about Paul personally himself. And what we see that Paul is driven by something. Paul is is actually, and I'll explain this in a minute, he's actually controlled by something. And this something that controls him is an ambition that is not secular, but holy. Now, we should all know from last week that word holy means to be set apart for God's use. So even his ambition that he has in his life is a holy ambition. He doesn't care about titles. He doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about what people think. He's got one ambition. And he said that ambition in his life is to preach the gospel where nobody else has ever heard it. To go where they've never even heard the name of Jesus. Now, I said just a minute ago, that Paul is controlled by this ambition. Now, what, why would I use that term? Well, just think about it. Look at verses 22 to 23. Paul says this, and what he's talking about here is his ambition to preach the gospel where nobody knows about Christ. This ambition is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. So Paul is writing to this church in Rome, up in Italy. And he says, man, I've wanted to come to you several times, but something has hindered me. Something has stopped me. And what has stopped me is there was always someplace else to go preach the gospel. Maybe I thought about going to Rome, but, I, but he realized, man, nobody in, there's no churches in Macedonia. Maybe I thought about going to, to, to Rome, but I realized there's no churches in Achaia. And so these things have stopped him. He goes on. But now, since I no longer have any work or any room for work in those regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you. So what Paul is saying here is, look, in this area, from, from basically from Jerusalem to Italy, I, there's churches everywhere. I've been, I've been on, he went on first missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey. He has spread the word of Jesus. He spread the gospel. He started uh, churches. And now he says, you know what? There's no more room for work in these areas. Okay? Now, here's what I want you to see. When you as a person have longed for years to do something. Isn't that what he said? I have longed for years to come to Rome. But yet, something stops you from going. Something takes a higher priority than that. That other thing, that something else, is controlling you. Does that make sense? I mean, here's something he's always wanted to do. Man, I've wanted to go to Rome for years. But this ambition to preach the gospel has stopped me. It has has hindered me. It takes priority over my own desires to travel to Rome. And what was controlling Paul, this other thing, as he said, is this ambition to preach in places where there are no churches, to preach in places where there are no Christians, to preach in places where the name of Jesus has never even been heard. Now, here's my question to you and I. What is your ambition? What's your ambition in life? You may look at me and say, well, Derek, I'm, you know, I'm X amount of years old and I, you know, if I had any ambitions, they're gone. No, we all have ambitions. We all have ambitions. In fact, let me put it this way. How about this definition? If an ambition is something that you want to do so much that it keeps you from doing other things that you want to do. I ask the question again, what's your ambition? What is it that's driving you in your life? Is it money? I mean, there's a lot of people, their ambition is money. They want to get rich. They they chase it and they chase it and they chase it and it drives them. Is it is it your career? Is it to obtain some some rank or some title? You're gonna you're gonna move up the ladder until you make this. Is that is that your ambition? Is your ambition just to get more toys, a bigger boat, a nicer house, another car? Is that your ambition? Is it is it retirement? Is that really what you're living for? You're living for that last tiny few years of your life. That's that's your ambition. Is it just your comfort? Is that all you want? Is that that driving the decisions you make? Is it your your happiness? Several years ago when I first taught this lesson back in 2014, I ran across a study. And the study said uh, that they did this thing and they found out that uh, couples without kids are happier than couples with kids. And when I first read that, I thought, well, that, that don't make no sense. I mean, children are great, right? And But then I, I read it, and I, I saw what they were asking. They would ask questions like, do you spend as much time uh, with your spouse as you'd like to? Well, the couples without kids said, well, yeah. The couples with kids said, oh, no, you know. Do you get to eat out at nice restaurants? Do you get to go on nice vacations? No, we're stuck going to Disney World every summer, right? We don't want to... The point being was this. One side was able to do all the things they wanted to do that made them happy. Eat at restaurants, go out to eat, spend plenty of time with their spouse and all this stuff. And these others are all stressed out, raising these little toddlers. See, the fact is, one hand, those people are making a decision. They, in their mind, happiness is eating at restaurants. Happiness is going on nice vacations. Happiness is having, you know, the attention of your spouse as much as you want. That's their idea of happiness. That's their ambition. It's driving them, even to the point that they will not have children, whereas the other couples have a, have a much longer viewpoint. But the point here is that something drives us to make the decisions we make. We all have ambitions. We all have something in our life that takes priority and drives us to make the decisions that we make. Our question is, is your ambition a holy one? Is your ambition an ambition that's set aside for God's use? Now listen, not everybody's ambition is the same. Certainly not everybody's ambition is going to be like Paul, to, to go into these... Uh, foreign countries, places where there's no churches, there's no Christians, they've never heard the name of Jesus. That's not going to be everybody's ambition. But listen, and, and, and we know that, by the way, and Paul gets that. Let me give you a few scriptures. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 8, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, each will receive his wages according to his labor. So Paul understands not everybody is an evangelist. Not everybody's a preacher or a teacher or a missionary. Everybody will receive his wages according to his labor. 1 Corinthians 7.7, 7, Paul says each has his own gift from God. Romans 14.4, it is before his own master that he stands or falls. So Paul completely understands, not everybody's going to be like me. Everybody, but let me tell you, I can't help but think that God would be pleased if each one of his children had a holy ambition. I just can't help but think God would be pleased if all of His children had something holy in their life, an ambition in their life that was driving them, that was set apart for God's use. Now, one more thing about Paul's ambition before we move on. Last week, we read in Romans fifteen nineteen, Paul said this, "...so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry..." of the gospel of Christ. Now, I love history. I love maps. I love, every time I see a a, a place in the Bible, I look it up. I want to know, well, where was that? Where where would that be? If you actually look on a map, down in the far right corner, that little red dot is Jerusalem. That's Israel. And, of course, above that is Lebanon and Syria and then Iraq and Turkey and all of that in that area. This area up here, uh, just north of the Adriatic Sea, that's modern-day Serbia, Croatia, uh, um, Montenegro, things like that. That was the Roman region of Illyricum. So what Paul is saying is from Jerusalem all the way around, up through, up through Turkey, all up into uh, what was back then Macedonia, all through Greece, all up into that area, he said, I've preached the gospel. I went where there was no churches. I went places they didn't even know They never even heard of Jesus. I had to explain to them who he was. All the way around, I have done that work. And I just mentioned a while ago, he he had two missionary journeys to that area. This was the route of his second missionary journey. And that was the route of his third missionary journey. So he's established all these different churches. So when you open the New Testament and you read letters to Corinthians and Ephesians and Philippians and and Galatians and, and Thessalonians, those are all those churches that he started from Jerusalem all the way around to Elycrium. Now read verses 23 to 24. Paul says, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in those regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, talking about Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now listen. Paul does not by any stretch of the imagination mean that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum that everybody is a Christian. That's not what he means. Okay, There are still plenty of unbelievers in those areas. In fact, uh, he writes in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 5, he says this. As for you, talking to Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Because there are still people... ...that need evangelizing. That's not what Paul means. He's not saying everybody in this region is saved. But you see, Paul's ambition is not to be an evangelist. His ambition is to be a missionary. And by the way, not just a missionary... ...but what we call a frontier or a pioneer missionary. He goes places that nobody else has ever gone. His ambition is to plant churches where there are no churches. To preach the gospel where they've never had the gospel... But what he says is, I've run out of places in this region. So the question becomes, where does he go next? What does he do next? That brings me to the second lesson from the life of Paul. And I call this a 2,000 mile detour. Let's read verses 23 to 24. Paul says, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in those regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So here's a map. When Paul is writing the book of Romans, or he's writing the letter to the Romans, he is in Corinth at that time. This, that's where he's at. He's not in Jerusalem. He's in, he's in the city of Corinth, which is, is, is part of Greece right there. And Paul says, I will go, I'm going to Spain. So Paul has heard that nobody's been to Spain yet and preached the gospel. And that's that's modern-day Spain. Nobody's been there. There's no churches in Spain. There's no missionaries in Spain. Nobody's preaching in Spain. That's where I'm going. Because remember, his ambition is what? To go places that nobody else has gone. So Paul says, I'm going to Spain. But on my way, he said, I want to stop by Rome. And I want to visit you. I've wanted to do this for years and years and years and years. Now, watch what he says in verse 25. At present, however... I have to go to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Now, let me go on. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. So, Paul says, remember, i got to go to Spain to preach the gospel. I'm going to stop in Rome, but before I do that i got one more thing that I need to do. I've got to go to Jerusalem. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them, he's talking about the money that's been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, this is an amazing thing. If you just stop sometimes and look at a map, it's crazy what you can learn from it. Paul says, I have wanted to go to Rome for years. This is a desire of his heart. He said that. And the timing for the trip is as good as it's ever been because he's he's out of work. He doesn't have any more places to plant churches. Yet, he still doesn't go to Rome. He has one more thing to do, which is to go to Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing. Jerusalem is a thousand miles in the opposite direction. He's not saying, i got to stop by Jerusalem. He's got to turn around and go back a thousand miles. Now, folks, this, there's no jets in that day. They did have ships, and, and uh, that was a dangerous way to travel. Storms were really bad in that area. Sometimes they would have to just stop and wait for months before, for the weather to clear up before they... So he, he's got something he really wants to do. He wants to go to Rome. And then he wants to go to Spain and preach. But he says, before I do it, i got to turn around and go back 1,000 miles in the opposite direction. He's got to make a 2,000-mile detour. Now, I want to know why. Don't you? Why would you do that? Couldn't somebody else take the money? I mean, come on, man. Why do you think it's so important that you've got to go 1,000 miles in the opposite direction? Now, let's take Paul at his word. Paul said to them, I have that, that That idea in the Greek is a deep desire. He's not just saying, man, it would be great if I could get there. Man, I, I wanted to come to Rome and, and to, to visit you there. First. By the way, one of the reasons he's never been is because there was already a church in Rome. And one of the reasons there was already a church in Rome, because if you go back and read the Gospels, Jesus had interactions with Roman soldiers. There were Roman soldiers that got saved, so they would have turned around and gone back to Rome and taken the Gospel with them. Church, the church had been in Rome for a long time. So Paul never went there because he had no reason to. There was already a church. But he wanted to go and help them and, and, and edify them. And notice what else he says. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. Well, that's Spain. This, this is the next target on his list. Man, I'm going to Spain. That's my ambition. So he's got this great longing to go to Rome. He's got this great ambition to preach the gospel. And yet he turns around and goes a thousand miles in the other direction. Now, what conclusion can we draw about that trip to Jerusalem. Well, there's only one. It had to be really, really, really important. This wasn't just a a stopover. This wasn't just... I mean, this had to be a big deal if Paul literally set aside his ambition to preach the gospel. He set aside his longing to visit Rome to go a thousand miles in the opposite direction. Now, again i got to ask question. What's so important that Paul can't just hand it off to somebody else? It's just money. Can you not give it to Luke? Can, can you not give it to John Mark? Can you, can you not give it to Tychicus or one of the other guys and have them take it? What's so important about it that it takes precedence over your desires and your ambitions? Well, what is he doing? Well, let's look first. Paul says, at present, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Okay? Now, at that time, evidently, the plight of the Christians... Remember, the Christians in Jerusalem were Jews. They weren't Gentiles. The Gentiles were in Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and and Philippi and all these other places. But in in Jerusalem, those were Jews. And their plight must have been absolutely terrible. For example, Acts 11.28 says this in the book of Acts. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Now, we know from Acts 11.28, and we also know from Josephus, who's the uh, Jewish historian, that there was a terrible famine in Judea between A.D. 44 and A.D. 48. So just a terrible famine. So there would have been hunger, uh, just all, all of that, right? Beyond that, Jewish Christians would have been ostracized by the community. They would have been fired from their jobs. They, they wouldn't have been hired. They would have been just persecuted and treated terribly. So you got this famine. You got this ostracized community. Every, evidently, when they, when they say they were poor, they were poor. So Paul decides to take up an offering for him. He mentioned that, by the way, in Romans 15, 26. He said, Macedonia, by the way, that's Philippi. Macedonia is the Roman region. Philippi is the city where the church, where he wrote the letter to the Philippians. And Achaia, Achaia again is the Roman uh, uh, province. Corinth is the city. And that's where Paul is, right? He's come to Corinth to get the money. He says, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor, among the saints at Jerusalem. So here Paul is in Corinth. He's got the money and he's fixing to go back to Jerusalem and deliver it instead of giving it to somebody else. Now, why? I'm going to give you two reasons I think he did it. Now, the text does not speak... This particular text doesn't say. There's some clues in other places, but I think there's two reasons Paul said, I have to do this myself. I can't just give this money to somebody else. The first is the reputation of the gospel. This is money, by the way, that Paul has personally raised. If you go back to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, before Paul travels to Corinth, he writes them and says, Hey, I'm coming, and I want you to take up an offering for the the saints in Jerusalem. So he's writing ahead the letter to say, I'm coming to get that money. So this is money that he has personally raised himself. And I think that in his mind, if something happened to that money, that it would not only undermine his ministry, but it would bring reproach on the gospel. Now again, this text doesn't say that. But as I just mentioned, if you go to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul is actually writing about this offering, he explicitly connects the offering with the gospel. Look at 2 Corinthians 9 13. Again, Paul is writing ahead. And he says this, As a result of your ministry or your contribution or your offering, they, talking about the the Jewish saints in Jerusalem, will give glory to God. For your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. Read that again. This offering will prove to everyone that you are obedient to the gospel. Okay? In other words, one one of the things at stake in this offering is the demonstration of the power of the gospel. That not only two things. Number one, that it takes Gentiles who used to hate Jews and it allows them to give their money for Jewish people. So that's one thing, the power. It, it, It bridges races. It bridges ethnicities. That's what the gospel does. The second thing the gospel does is it frees people from the love of money and makes them generous. People that used to love money and hang on to money and chase money, now all of a sudden they're just they're they're generous with it. That's the gospel. So Paul says this offering is going to prove the power of the gospel. So I think that's one thing that was at stake. And if something were to happen to that money, if it were stolen, or God forbid somebody had embezzled it, it would contradict the very nature of the gospel. You, you can imagine people saying, well, you know, hey, the money got it didn't show up. Well, you know, I guess it wasn't a wasn't, wasn't real deal. I heard all this stuff about these Christians up in Corinth, but maybe that money never even existed. That's what's at stake. Paul says I, I, it was that important that the Jews see that the Gentiles had been changed. It was the very nature of the gospel. In fact, Paul is so concerned for the integrity of the gospel... That he puts aside his desire to visit Rome. He puts aside his ambition to preach the gospel of Christ in Spain. So concerned, by the way, that he puts his own integrity on the line. He's not going to blame it on John Mark. He's not going to blame it on Luke. He's not going to blame it on Tychicus. If something happens, it's going to be on him. He puts his own integrity on the line. Now, here's my question to you. Are you and I that concerned for the integrity of the gospel? Are you and I that concerned for the integrity of the gospel? Are we so concerned for the integrity of the gospel that we'd put off our plans? That we'd put off our desires? Our ambitions to make sure the gospel is put in the best possible light? Paul did. That's exactly what Paul did. Things he always wanted to do, he set it aside. His ambition to preach the gospel, he set it aside to make sure that the, that the gospel itself was put in the best possible light. Are we willing to do that? The second reason I think he did it, because he wanted to emphasize the Christian commitment to the poor. First John 3.17 says this, If anyone sees the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love Abide in Him. Paul himself wrote in a very famous chapter, First Corinthians thirteen two. He said this: If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, and I didn't, he didn't say this, but he said, but if I could travel to Rome, or if I could go to 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 Spain and preach the gospel, but I don't have love, I am nothing. See, love is is sharing what you have with your brothers and sisters. It's what what John just said. If you you see your brother in need and you don't help, how can you say the love of God abides in you? See, Paul, with all of his preaching and all of his theology and all of his revelation, he never forgot the reality of the gospel, the reality of real faith. James chapter 2 says this, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, And one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. See, Paul's life, was his ambition was to preach, but he never forgot that real faith puts, puts the gospel in action. And he wanted to demonstrate that, I think, with his own life. So, Paul takes this offering... To the, to the Jerusalem, and I think, again, he does it to uh, underline the importance of ministry to the poor. By the way, he does this at tremendous risk. You see, Paul has been warned, don't go back there. They want to kill you there. There are men there that are waiting for you to show up. They are going to kill you, one way or another. Do not go to Jerusalem. I mean, this is, I mean just think about what he did. I, I just can't get over it. It would have been so easy, there's danger back there. It would have been oh so easy to say, Luke, you take this money. I got something more important to do. I gotta go preach the gospel, and that's important. But he didn't. Put his own neck on the line to go back to Jerusalem. By the way, he clearly understood there was danger. Look at verses thirty to thirty-one. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. He knew he was going back into the mouth of the lion. He knew that. And yet he went anyway. Third lesson, and these last two will be short. Uh, I entitled this one, Wrestling to Rest. Wrestling to Rest. Rest. Let's read verses 30 to 33. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers. That word strive in the Greek means to fight. It means to battle. It means to struggle. That's exactly what it means. Fight with me in your prayers. Wrestle with me in your prayers. Strive with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. So that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. So Paul says, will you, will you pray with me? Not just a, not just a 10 second prayer. God bless them. Will you strive with me in prayer so that I may be delivered from those unbelievers, make it to Rome and have rest with you, be refreshed with you. I entitled this wrestling to rest, wrestling to rest, because this is actually a good description of the Christian life. See, Paul's not unusual. This is actually normal Christian living. If you're a follower of Jesus, your whole life is wrestling to rest. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me give you some scriptures. Luke thirteen twenty four. Jesus said this, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Matthew seven thirteen to 14. The gate is wide. The way is easy that leads to destruction. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Jesus himself says that getting to heaven is hard. You have to strive to get through that narrow door. You have to fight. You have to battle. But here's the thing. That's not the end of the story. In Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Jesus himself said this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay, how can it be both? Which one is it, Jesus? Is it resting in you or is it wrestling to get there? Which one is it? Well, folks, it's both. You see, we wrestle because our hearts do not naturally rest in Jesus. We have to fight against things that promise us rest somewhere else. Let me give you an example. You see, money beckons us to come rest in me. Come on, man. Just, just, if you got money, you'll be happy. You won't have any worries. Come on over here, I'll give you rest. Sex beckons us to rest in the way it can make us feel. Power and recognition beckon us to rest in what they can give for us. I I can go down the line. Health, food, athletics, family, friends, hobby, education, looks, accomplishments. They all say, come on over here. Come on over here and rest in me. But folks, let me tell you, they're all an illusion. They all promise rest, but every single one of them enslave and destroy. See, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. See, our battle, and I'll just say this, our battle is against those things. We wrestle against the temptation to rest in money. We we wrestle against the temptation to to rest in success or to rest in our family or to rest in whatever. That's the battle because our nature wants to pull us that way. And Jesus says, you want real rest, you come to me. That's our whole life. We wrestle to rest. I, I'm 59. I started to say 58. I don't even remember how old I am. I'm 59. was saved when I was 11. 40, whatever something years that is, 48 years. And I wrestle every day to rest. Every day something says you'll find happiness here. You'll find contentment here. And I have to say, no, there is one place I find rest, and that's in Jesus Christ. That battle never stops until the day you die never stops. The world will always be pulling you away. I close with this, the will of God. Let's read uh, chapter 15, 30, 33 again. Paul says, Strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. So let's reiterate one more time what Paul's doing. He's going a thousand miles in the opposite direction. He's been warned. Don't go back there. He goes back, Right? And he knows, he says, pray for me that I'll be delivered. That's what he's praying for, his protection. And my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. What a lesson this is. It is so simple. Paul says, my desire is to go to Rome. My ambition is to go preach the gospel in Spain. Pray for me. That after I'm delivered from that, pray for my protection, pray that I come to you with rest. After all that's said and done, Paul understands it still depends on the will of God. It still depends on the will of God. See, I don't know if you know it or not, but Paul will never make it to Spain. He'll never make it to Spain. That thousand miles he travels back will be the last thousand miles he ever travels as a free man. That's it. That's it. He gets to Rome, he's going to be arrested while he's in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, he gets back to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested. He's sent to Rome for trial. He's in prison for two years, and then they chop his head off. See, he's not going to make it to Spain. He wanted to. He had all these plans. But you see, Paul understands that in the end, it's all about the will of God. By the way, Paul does make it to Rome, but not the way he thought he goes in chains, and it's still the will of God. Paul wrote this. He's in a Roman prison. It's getting right near the end. Somebody's probably told him, man, we're hearing rumors they're going to kill you any day. And he pens a letter to his protege, Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. This is what Paul says. Brother Bill, I think, uses scripture on Sunday. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. See, that term right there, Paul says, it was not my race to go to Spain. That's going to be for somebody else. Somebody else has got to go do that. This is it for me. But I have finished the race that God has set for me. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And here's the best part. Not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. That's you and me. Let me tell you, make your plans. Nothing wrong with that. Pray about those plans. Nothing wrong with that. But you understand in the end, it's the will of God. God may have something completely different for your life. And if you can understand that, when it happens, you're okay with it. You're okay with it. You don't look at God like, what are you doing? You realize, oh, you had something different for me. And you can rest in that. But you have to understand, Paul understood it was the will of God. And we do as well. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you as we always do for your incredible, incredible, incredible word. Father, help us to to be like Paul. That, that is the desire of my heart, and I know it's the desire of many here, that we don't just know it in our head. We don't just, are not able to just spout Scripture, God, or, or even we may be the best witnesses, or witnesses, we may be the best encouragers, we may be great evangelists, God. But Father, we want it to be at our very core of who we are. It's in every decision that we make, it's in every ambition that we have. And Father, it's certainly, certainly in our trust in you as the sovereign Lord of our life. Father, let us be that kind of people. We said it, we've said it for weeks now. Let us be a people that with all the stuff that's going on out there, that they look in here and they see something different. They see something different. Not people just saying it, but people doing it. And that comes from you, Holy Spirit. It's not us. We cannot do it on our own. We can only do it through your power. Make it so in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this podcast from River of Life. We want to encourage you to visit us this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. For more information, visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under Rol Crawfordville.